Hello and welcome to Broadway Binge for another mini-sode. It's just Jeremy today and I will be talking about Me and Juliet, which is one of the forgotten Rodgers and Hammerstein shows. This one is from 1953 and it is not considered a huge success. It came after Allegro, which, um, well, it came after a number of Rodgers and Hammerstein shows, but in terms of the mini-sode order we're doing, we previously talked about Allegro, which also was not a big hit by Rodgers and Hammerstein, and that was basically um, Hammerstein's baby. Oscar Hammerstein was really passionate about putting up this musical about, you know, a small-town doctor man who sort of moved to the big city and realized that he didn't actually want success, and success sort of overwhelmed him and threatened to turn him into someone who he wasn't. And it was a sort of autobiographical show of Hammerstein, but audiences really did not take to it. It also didn't help that the music and lyrics were just not as good as in their other uh, early shows like Oklahoma and Carousel and then later South Pacific. But at this point, when Me and Juliet comes out in 1953, they have sort of gotten over the whole Allegro thing, gone back to having a huge hit in The King and I in 1951. So people are aware at this point that Rodgers and Hammerstein, they're not just like a, a three-hit wonder with Oklahoma Carousel and um, South Pacific, and that they're capable of you know, having good shows and having less good shows and going back and forth between them. Me and Juliet is a less good show. I would say, having listened to the soundtrack only. I have not seen it live because you're going to be hard-pressed to ever see a live production of this. Very few people are putting up Me and Juliet. I don't know if anyone has put it up in a while, in the whole world, really. Before we go any further, I just want to note that uh, when I think of Me and Juliet, the, the title sounds like a sort of like early-mid-2000s teen movie starring Amanda Bynes where she goes undercover as Romeo in a high school production of Romeo and Juliet um and uh, I hope you can see that as well I I guess I'm also sort of thinking like the prince in me this sort of genre of movie I feel like me and Juliet would have been a perfect movie title in that line um and it might surprise you to find out that me and Juliet actually has nothing to do with Romeo and Juliet I assumed honestly until two days ago when I opened up the Wikipedia article on Me and Juliet, I'd been operating under the assumption that this was some sort of Romeo and Juliet musical by Rodgers and Hammerstein, but actually it has nothing to do with that. If you ask them why it's called Me and Juliet, they probably wouldn't be able to give you a great answer either, because there's really not a lot of rhyme or reason to this show. So basically, to give you the the context and how this happened, Rodgers has been wanting to write a musical comedy about a cast and crew backstage at a theater for a long time, sort of show within a show way overplayed trope in the theater scene. I I personally almost always hate shows within a show, whether it's on TV, movie. It's just so like, write what you know. Like the writers are in Broadway, so they write about Broadway, and that's what they know, and everyone's done it. You've seen everything a million times. Like, yeah, sure, there's like good versions of it. There's versions of it that are actually interesting and are actually funny, but I don't know. I think if you're capable of writing something that's interesting and funny, maybe don't write about a show within a show. It's played out. I'm done with it. So with this particular one, Rogers also has been wanting to write, you know, sort of a traditional musical comedy. Like, for example, we have Kiss Me Kate is another show within a show written after Rogers and Hammerstein, so it has to have some sort of integration. But, you know, really it's just about, you know, being funny and being fun. And Rogers wanted to do something like that. And Hammerstein usually would maybe have tried to shoot this one down because Hammerstein was not interested in this premise. But Rogers really... Uh, stuck his neck out there for Hammerstein with uh, the boring Allegro. So Hammerstein figured it was his turn to do a show that Rogers wanted to do that he didn't. So he said, okay, let's do this. And one of the more notable things about the show 
is that the uh, special effects were very interesting. Very often now in Broadway, you'll have these giant sets that sort of come out of the ground and have all sorts of moving parts, and they're very, you know, on electric time schedules and things. And I like I refer to them as robot sets sometimes. One of my biggest issues with the musical Billy Elliot, actually, which I think is an overrated musical, but one of my biggest issues with it is it's about um, this sort of poor, down-in-their-luck family um, in, you know, North England in the 80s who just, like, can't scrape together a few pennies. They have to go on strike, and yet the set their house, this poor family's house, is this monstrous robotic set. It's like the height of technology. And I'm like, okay, I can get a robot set sometimes, maybe with like a Disney musical, but it has to be in service of the story. And in Billy Elliot, I don't think it is. Anyway, the point is, you might be able to say that Me and Juliet is the first robot set. It's a giant set such that it sort of can turn around sideways and go on and off stage. So you can see the actors in the show within a show performing on stage, quote unquote on stage, while you can also see the crew behind stage. Uh, so that was pretty innovative. And because Rodgers and Hammerstein had such a big name, the show did really well in pre-sales. And they sold so many tickets on pre-sales that they managed to run for about 10 months. And then when they hit the 10-month point, all of their pre-sale tickets had been sold or had been used up. So they just stopped the run. But still, the show was profitable because back then, shows were just you know cheap enough. I suppose that 10 months of pre-sale tickets is enough to put you in profit. So even though the critics didn't like it that much, it actually did turn a small profit for Rodgers and Hammerstein. But basically, they sort of threw this thing together. Hammerstein was not that into it. He had kind of ideas of making the show within a show really experimental and interesting, but that kind of never materialized to the point where even people watching the show didn't really know what the show within a show was about. The the behind-the-stage plot, not that exciting. You have um, a, a woman who's a chorus member is uh, dating a guy who works backstage, but the assistant stage manager wants to date her. So they start sort of getting involved, and her ex-boyfriend's really upset, and he's sort of like the poor man's Judd from Oklahoma, and he sings sort of like a lame Judd song that I'm not even going to bother playing for you. I will play a few songs from the show. And eventually, you know, they all end up happily ever after. The other stage manager uh, has to break up with his girlfriend because she joins the cast and he thinks that the stage manager can't date a cast member but then he goes to another show so we can be with her in the end blah blah not that exciting and hammerstein was not really thrilled about it he sort of pretended he was after um while the show was going on but after it had been running for a certain period of time um eventually you know he stopped coming to see the show all the time and uh there's a story that his secretary later told that um he went back into his office after seeing the show one night and his secretary asked him how the show was going and Hammerstein thought for a second and then said, I hate that show. And so he was uh, very much not on board. What they had to do, at, um, they brought on George Abbott as a director because, you know, we've talked a lot about George Abbott. He's an expert at these musical comedies. But even he couldn't really fix this all on his own. And also, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein were so involved and they had so much cachet that Abbott couldn't sort of like totally recreate the show from scratch. They did give him leeway to rewrite a lot of the book from scratch because Hammerstein just did not care. Um, but it, to some extent, they just like couldn't save the show. There's another fun little anecdote. Um, who knows if this is, who knows if any of these anecdotes are true or not, but there's another anecdote that um, the show within a show wasn't working. So they sort of wanted to add in, you know, better dance numbers because their current choreographer, Bob Alton, was sort of just doing very routine song and dance numbers. So Rodgers and Hammerstein approached Jerome Robbins, who, you know, we've talked about a lot. He's maybe the best choreographer in Broadway history. And they approached him to ask if he could fix the dances. And Robbins said, he could, but he wouldn't. 
I mean, the full quote is he wouldn't because it would kill Bob Alton. But I just love the idea that Robin's like, yeah, I could fix your show, but I'm not going to do it. So um, basically, that's that. It, it did, you know, fine. Critics, no critics gave it sort of good reviews. Some critics gave it eh reviews and some critics gave it bad reviews. So now I'll just play a little bit of it for you so that you'll never have to listen to it again. Not that you ever would have listened to it in the first place, but, you know, if you've ever just been a little bit curious, like, I wonder what the show sounds like, I'm going to play a couple little bits of it. There's actually one song I quite like, but sort of just unrelated to anything about the musical. I sort of just like as independent. Um, But first, I'm going to play a song that sort of I describe as, like, soft jazz. Like, I can't even believe this is an R&H song because it's just so blah and mediocre. So here's um, the first song in the show. Okay, wake up everyone. The podcast is still going on. We are back. And uh, so yeah, that's the opener. So, you know, that's that. And you might think, oh, this must be some like weird cover. But no, this is the original Broadway cast album. Other songs have full orchestrations. That must be, I imagine, how it actually sounded on Broadway. And I know they had this sort of experimental thing. You know, there's a bright golden haze on the meadow, only one woman churning butter on stage when a voice is coming from off stage. But still, that was that was a little bit weak. Um, I'm going to skip ahead to the actual hit from this show. It's not really a hit because it was in this show. It's just that um, after the show came out, Perry Como recorded this song, No Other Love, and it became a number one hit on the charts. But I'm not even sure how many people were aware of the fact that it came from a musical which had just been released. So this is No Other Love as it appears in the musical, not the Perry Como version. Yeah, so when I heard uh, that theme in the overture at the beginning of the soundtrack, I was actually shocked at uh, the fact that I had heard of a song from this show because I have heard that one before. And it's, you know, it's decent. It's I would call it beneath Rodgers and Hammerstein, but I can see how it was a number one hit, especially with a star such as Perry Como. And I honestly couldn't tell you anything about Perry Como for the life of me, but it's one of those names you sort of hear being thrown around in uh, pop culture. I bet the, you know, the next generation, maybe the young kids who are coming up right now, I don't know if they're ever going to hear the phrase Perry Como. They might be a little bit too far removed. But I'd say in the millennial generation, I've, I've, heard, uh, I've heard people mention the name Perry Como before. So, yes. Um, now I'm going to uh, skip to the one song I like. It's called Intermission Talk. I believe it is the first song in Act 2, which is appropriate. And it's about a bunch of audience members talking about the show they just saw um, and sort of just like comments that audience members make in an intermission. And I find it extremely true to life. And this is the kind of stuff, the kind of way people talk about shows even now. And it shows how self-aware Hammerstein was writing, you know, how people were actually talking about his shows, the intermission of his shows, probably because he was always sitting in the audience watching them. 
and overhearing this stuff. And there's like a lot of good stuff in this song. I don't want to play it all though. I will put it in the, the Broadway Binge Listen Along playlist that we update as we go and, you know, we add songs that we've played on the show. So um, I'll put this in there. It's called Intermission Talk for me and Juliet. I kind of recommend listening to the whole thing if you've got nothing better to do. If you have something better to do, then don't waste your time. But here, I'll just play a little bit of intermission talk, maybe like two different portions of the song. I don't think it's right to be sulky all night over one little bill from sex. What do I care if they balance the budget as long as they cut my tax? I like the one that goes, no other love have I. Hurry back home tonight. It's me, it's me, it's me. behind me had garlic for dinner would you like to trade your seat i think the production is fine the music is simply divine the story is lovely and gay but it just isn't my kind of play That's really good. Also, just a sign that people have been saying the theater is fading away uh, for a very long time. Even in the time of what we call the golden age of theater, when theater was undeniably at its height, you know, everyone's complaining theater's not like it used to be. Theater's fading away. Uh, so I thought uh, that song was really fun. There's really nothing else I want to play for you guys from this show. Um, I, there's one person who has commented that the soundtrack is actually better than the show because... Uh, it sort of has a certain life to it that the show on stage did not have. So I'm sitting here thinking, like, oh, my God, like, if the soundtrack has more life to it than the show, then, like, I don't know, I don't know about the show. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, you know, play a snippet of just – I'll pick a random song just because I've been talking about how bad the show is, but then I, like, play the two songs that have some merit to it. So let's just, like, find a random song so you can see that it's, like, not that great. All right. Don, you're on. Baby, this is it. Uh, let's create some chaos. This could be the night. Let us be the first two wrongs that ever made a right. We deserve each other. We deserve each other. I'll tell the world that we do. All right. That should tell you everything you need to know. So um, I'm sorry I don't have more insight or anything. I sort of tried to pick out the best anecdotes that I read about it. Actually, I'll say one more anecdote, and then we'll call it a night. So I guess Hammerstein's son, James Hammerstein, uh, served as the second assistant stage manager, and he had a really difficult relationship with Rogers. The young Hammerstein, James, wrote about this later on, um, and he wasn't getting along with Richard Rogers. 
Uh, so Rogers, you know, insisted that he do his work from the front of the house instead of backstage because he didn't want to let a Hammerstein be backstage, you know, sort of run the show. And he also, James Hammerstein, was attracted to a lead female dancer. So he asked her out. And just before the date, Richard Rogers decided to fire this lead female dancer and told James Hammerstein to break the news. So basically just like really screwing over Hammerstein's dating life and firing this poor dancer who did nothing wrong just to sort of stick it to young James. So I kind of didn't realize that Richard Rogers was the worst. Um, I mean, maybe he was like a great guy in every other aspect of his life. We know how progressive he was compared to the other people in his time in terms of the art he made. But I feel really bad for James Hammerstein. I feel like this kid's just trying his best and uh, Rogers is just screwing him over. So uh, there you go. That's sort of everything that you need to know about me and Juliet. So um, I'm not sure when Hannah and I are next going to do a real episode. 1959 is a big year. Very interesting. You've got uh, Gypsy, Sound of Music, and we're also going to do um, Once Upon a Mattress from that year. But if Hannah and I don't get to you next week with uh, one of those shows, then I'll probably talk about another Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, most likely Flower Drum Song in another mini-sode. In that case, I'll actually watch the movie version of it because they did make one. Um, So thanks, everyone, and um, have a good week. Bye.